Okay, everybody, um, we're going to get started here with our speakers for this morning. Um, I'm wondering, though, does anyone have like a really good nickname that you learned about or that you would like, that like you think you should have? Who has the best nickname in here? No one has any good nicknames? Okay, fine. <laughs> we'll move on to our speakers then. I won't embarrass anyone. Um, so Isaac and Jennifer Stow are missionaries with Youth for Christ in Barcelona, Spain. Um, Jen is the daughter of Mark and Stephanie Dodrell, which might be names you recognize here at Faith Church. Um, so in Barcelona, Isaac and Jen work mostly with young people, uh, where they partner with a local church to support a youth ministry, and they also help teach some English. Um, they both enjoy triathlons, which I, that is something is on my bucket list someday to do, so good job, guys, <laughs> um, and reading. And Jen also enjoys acting, and Isaac likes to play piano and other instruments as well. And they're here in Indianapolis through August 4th, so not here often. I'm excited that we have them here today uh, to share their story. So before they come up, I'm just going to say a quick word of prayer for them. Heavenly Father, I um, just want to thank you for... Isaac and Jennifer, um, thank you that they're here and that they're willing to share their story with us. Um, thank you for safe travels and, and for the great work they're doing, doing for you. And I just pray you'd be with them this morning as they share their story with us, give them the words to say, and, and open our ears and our hearts to hear about how you've been working in their lives. Uh, Father, I just lift them up to you, and I, I pray these things in your name. Amen. So, Isaac and Jennifer, come on up. Well, great. So I'm Isaac, and this is Jennifer, if you were asking, wondering. Um, thanks for inviting us. We're really pumped to be here. Um, we, like uh, Anne-Marie just said, we work with Youth for Christ in Barcelona, Spain, and we are applying to be part of the Faith Missionary family here. And um, we will be living here until August 4th, so we would love to get together with you guys if you want, have a coffee, get ice cream, mostly ice cream. Um, and yeah, we can get to know you guys, and you guys can hear what God is doing in Barcelona, Spain. Uh, so my grandparents attended this church many, many years ago, uh, Rufus and Violet Dodrell. I'm not sure. They were like a long time ago. And my dad also grew up in this church. And then my dad and my mom, as Amory said, um, have been missionaries with Faith Church for many years, Mark and Stephanie. And so I'm the youngest of their children. Um, I have an older sister, Christina, and then Alex. And I just remember being here a lot over the summers. Like we would come and stay with my uncles and come to to faith over the summers. And it's just been a really big part of my family's lives over the years. This church has been a huge support to them. So thank you. So Jen and I met in an anthropology class at Wheaton College. Uh, we dated for two years and got married five days after graduation. Ever since I became a Christian, I, as a teenager, I knew God was calling me to the mission field. Um, so through my home church in Chicago, I was sent on several short-term trips, and it was there and on the short-term trips that I caught the cross-cultural ministry bug. Um, so I decided to go to Wheaton to study just that. While there, I figured I'd take some language classes, just try my hand at learning a second language. I chose Spanish. It seemed like the easiest one. And it was right around then that I met this really interesting and cute girl uh, from Spain. 
So uh, six months later, we started dating. Two years after that, we were married, living in West Chicago, raising support to go to the mission field. Two years after that, uh, we were living in Spain as missionaries with Youth for Christ. So for me, the journey was a little bit different. Um, I'd seen the difficulties of being a missionary from my parents, and I wasn't quite sure I wanted to just jump into that life uh, until I felt clearly called to it by God. So in college, I was an RA, and I kept jumping into uh, ministry roles because I just enjoyed it but not as a job, like that was clear. And then I made that clear to Isaac while we were dating. And he said that if God had called us together, he would figure out the details and would put us on the same page as to what the future held. It's like, wise man. (laughs) So I married him in the end, it worked out. Um, So yeah, and then at Wheaton, I studied communications and theater. And then after that, I worked at a marketing company in Chicago and uh, while Isaac was finishing up his master's. The first summer I was working there, I would see pictures of the Youth for Christ camps going on in Barcelona, and I just felt like my heart was there. Um, I wanted to be mentoring kids, pouring into their lives, and then I realized God had given me a husband who was passionate about Spain and living overseas. And he'd given me years of experience in ministry through the different volunteer roles that I had. And uh, he'd also put all these passions in my heart that were compatible with the ministry YFC was doing in Barcelona. So I finally said to the Lord, oh, I see it now. (laughs) Um, Thanks for guiding me all the way here and being patient with me while I figured out uh, and wrestled with this calling. And so we applied to be missionaries with Youth for Christ, and two years later went to Barcelona to join the YFC team there. So this morning we wanted to use a passage of scripture to just begin to share what God has been doing in our lives. And this passage of scripture comes from John 3, 22 through 30. If you want to turn, you can. I'll read it just in a second here. Um, we're hoping that it speaks to you as much as it speaks to us. And yeah, like we've said, it's, it's something that has really spoken to us over the, the years of us understanding this passage. So John 3, 22 through 30. After this, G- Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. This passage always surprises me. It surprises me because when you understand the context who Jesus is, who John the Baptist is at this particular time, um, the passage starts to come to life. So we're going to take this just piece by piece. So first it says that an argument developed between some of John's disciples, another Jew, and so these disciples go to John and they complain. 
They say, um, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing everyone. Everyone's going to him. In those times, John the Baptist was more popular than Jesus. Sometimes we think that Jesus had this huge booming ministry all of a sudden, but it didn't start that way. Um, and it was actually due to some of the things that Jesus does at the beginning of his ministry that his ministry actually started quite small. So for instance, John, uh, Jesus does in secret almost uh, the, the transformation of water into wine. Doesn't take credit for it. Miraculous, doesn't take credit for it. Also, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. Um, we don't hardly ever ask if Jesus wanted to be seen with Nicodemus. It might have been sort of a, a secretive meeting on both sides. It's not said. But we can assume that Jesus is doing things in secret. And then he does something tremendously public. He, he, he starts a, uh, a baptism ministry. Um, now, this didn't seem quite right to the followers of John. So they went to John to talk about Jesus. They say, hey, teacher, do you know what? That guy you baptized before, yeah, that's the one. He's baptizing everyone. He's stepping on your, on your thing. You're John the Baptist. John and Jesus were cousins. When the followers of John say to him, he who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, they do this knowing that Jesus and John are close family. And close family back in the day did everything together. I mean, they would have grown up together. They would have done Jewish festivals together like the Passover. They would have done the whole Disney family vacation thing. Um, and so it, what are they trying to communicate when they don't use Jesus's name in that way? They're communicating distance. It would be a lack of respect to talk about someone you both know in the third person, that guy, that person. And you know what? They do it on purpose. They're angry. They're caught off guard. According to them, Jesus is squashing the ministry of John. He's stealing followers. Jesus is robbing the sustenance of John and his followers. They would prefer if Jesus would just stay in the shadows, just stay a small movement, just back off. Um, so they think, hey, I'll go to John and we'll complain. I mean, he's got to talk about boundaries with his family, man. He's, he's, you're John the Baptist, this is Jesus the nobody, it's just this how this is works. So, are you beginning to see some of the tension here in this verse, or see some of the friction? Um, so, our question for you guys is, what's your reaction? Like, would you be in the camp of the followers of John the Baptist, um, asking, okay, maybe they're right, like, why did Jesus settle so close? Like, he could have gone somewhere else to baptize people, and that way he wouldn't have been stepping on their ministry. Or are you um, on the other side of like, the followers of John are completely out of place. Of course you want Jesus to have more followers than John the Baptist, like he's Jesus after all. Um, well, I think many times for me and for us, our reaction can be like that of the followers of John the Baptist. Sometimes uh, we just put what we do after our name, like we talked about earlier. Like figuratively speaking, we'll say, um, he, hi, I'm Jen, and then the next thing we ask is, okay, so what do you do? Um, and for example, for me, a long time ago, for many years, it would be, well, I'm a missionary kid. Um, and then something in your life shakes you or makes you question, wait, is this really me? Uh, is, if, who am I if I'm not really X, whatever you put after your name? 
And when this happens, when uh, your identity starts shaking, what we've done is assume an identity based on what we do and not something much deeper. And this produces all kind of messed up stuff um, in how we think and how we feel and how we do life with others and with God. I want to share a moment from my life when this happened to me recently. Uh, last August, we went to a spiritual retreat for people in ministry. It was after a full season of camps, and we were exhausted. I don't know if you are familiar with spiritual retreats, but typically a question that the leaders will ask like over and over again is, how are you feeling in this moment? Um, and after getting that question three or four times, I started to realize, I don't really know how I feel. Uh, I was quite numb in that moment. And as I started to unpack the reason behind this, God began to reveal things to me about my identity. Uh, through the people at camp and in quiet times, I started to see why I was feeling numb and exhausted. And the reason was that I was working so hard to keep everything in motion in ministry and trying to please the people around me that I was beginning to lose myself in the tasks that I was doing. And not only that, my identity was so close to whether people were pleased with me that for a long time I just shut down emotions that didn't make me feel productive or useful or that maybe would be awkward for other people to see in the context that I was in. That week I discovered that the people pleasing and finding security in work went way back to my childhood. Uh, I'm a missionary kid and after all, people pleasing is kind of what we do. Like it just comes with the territory, right? You meet new people all the time and you want them to like you. It's just natural. Um, and I'd grown up to know in a very deep way that God loved me and was pleased with me, but I didn't feel like that. I didn't feel like God loved me or was pleased with me. Uh, I felt like I needed to do more that I needed to continue working and pleasing, that what I was was just not good enough. I couldn't feel that God loved me because I just shut down that part of myself in exchange for this identity of uh, finding, uh, that I was finding and keeping things moving and in pleasing others. And during that week, in a very distinct way, uh, I felt God giving me permission to feel again to feel his love and his pleasure with me, but also to feel and lament over sad things, um, over moments that I had bottled up my emotions and not paid attention to God. And God invited me into uh, accepting my identity as his kid, like God's kid and not a missionary kid. Um, not an identity that I could ever earn, but one that cost God everything to secure for me, for every one of us. And John also knew his identity as a child of God. He had baptized his cousin Jesus not long before this story takes place. And while he's doing that, he hears this voice from heaven. He hears God saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And God is saying this about Jesus, but John knows that he's also loved by that same God and that God was pleased with him simply because of who he was, not because he baptized people. And we see how John's identity is secure in the response that he gives to his own disciples. 
He says, to, the, to this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. So John begins explaining an external reality to his disciples. He says, my opportunities and my abilities, the time that I walk on this earth, they do not depend on me. God is the one who gives those to me. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. He's aware that his mission is given to him by God and it's not his, it belongs to God. And then John talks about this internal reality. He says, I'm not the Christ. John knows who he is and who he is not. And he uses this example of a wedding. He says, I'm not the groom, I'm the best man, and therefore I'm happy for my friend. And this example of John is such a good one. It's kind of a strange and sad day when you show up at your best friend's wedding wanting to be one position over, like in the place of the bride or the groom. It's kind of awkward. You wouldn't want to be in that place. And what John is saying is, I'm not Jesus, I'm not the groom, I'm this is Jesus' time, his wedding, between him and his bride. And in fact, John says, my life, what I do, is not about me. It's about Jesus. And I want Jesus to be known and exalted more than anything else. And I would happily lose my job, my reputation, my meaning for Jesus. So does this resonate with any of you guys? Our time, our jobs, our opportunities, our abilities, our passions, even our callings, duties, vocations, they're not about us. They're about Jesus. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Everything hinges on how we relate to Jesus, and this is something that we're learning in our own lives. According to John, Jesus, and later apostles, we relate to Jesus through various analogies, and here the analogy is of that of a bride. Um, we are the bride, and we invite others, using words and actions, to become so too. Here I think about our, our own wedding. Um, when Jen was walking down the aisle, one of the little girls that she had ba babysat in college was so excited to see her that she pointed and shrieked. She couldn't help, she couldn't help but let a, a, a gasp, a, a shriek escape her mouth. Um, she was just so ecstatic that she couldn't help what she did. As we extend the analogy just a little bit, this is very much like what we do as the bride. We let little shrieks of excitement escape our mouths. We gush about how, how great it is to be the bride. And we do it because of who the groom is. Hmm. I think about the various people God has brought into my life while living in Spain. I think about Frank, a neo-Buddhist acupuncturist that attended my English classes. When the moment was right one day, the topic came upon, upon Jesus and I was able to share. I also think about my friend Julian, um, another English student, who, but convinced that philosophy's pursuit of truth can supply what we need to live a worthy life. With him, I was able to share how Jesus is the truth and that he brings questions or brings answers to the deepest questions of our hearts. And then finally, I think about Sergi, a 10-year-old English student, um, and he was and still is a, a troublemaker. I, I remember having to pull him aside after class some days just to talk about his behavior. Um, so, but despite all this, God kept showing me ways to love him and be patient with him. Well, come this summer, Sergi wanted to attend one of our YFC camps. 
English camp, actually um, the camp your short-term team came to help us with. Sergi showed up at the beginning of the week not willing to hear a word about God, but by the end of the week was excited and ready to accept a relationship with Jesus. After two years of consistent life presence, I'd been teaching him for two years, Sergi was finally ready to become part of the Bride of Christ. None of these stories are over. Frank is still a neo-Buddhist. Julian is still interested in his philosophies. And um, Sergi is still a 10-year-old in a non-Christian family. But we're not called to convert, convince, force, capture. We're called to a consistent life presence in people's lives in which we allow God to so fill us with the joys of being the bride that we can't help but just gush about who the one true God is. And it all begins with letting Jesus be seen and increase in importance, and we decrease. So how God has been teaching Isaac and I to do this, um, we wanted to mention just a couple of thoughts and stories, and then we'll end. But first, Isaac and I realized that we have to start acting as if all opportunities and moments are given to us by God, because they are. Um, but I find it impossible to see opportunities and moments in my day when I'm flying into the next thing that I need to do. And Carl Jung says, hurry is not from the devil, it is the devil. This is so true. Uh, the devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to rob us from experiencing life's abundance. And he does this by making us feel like we need to rush into the next thing. Like constantly do what's next. The devil also wants to rob us from savoring the moments that God has prepared for us to walk into. He robs us from the joy of taking things slow, of being in the present. Uh, one thing we're trying to do is start to be present in each moment, or we're trying at least. And we encourage you to also take advantage of the moments God gives you, no matter what they are. And maybe just linger a little longer and lean into what's happening. Um, some examples could be like a conversation with a barista or talking about God with a kid at a VBS or doing the laundry, Excel sheets, taking your kid on a college visit. I don't know. Uh, but these simple moments are examples of how God could be inviting us deeper into what he's doing in the present. And second, it's quite easy for us to lose focus. Um, we can go back to attaching our identity to what we're doing or get caught up in arguments with others about significant, insignificant things. Uh, we can easily miss the point or go back to old ways of doing things. I do this a lot. So in our story, we know that later on, some of the disciples of John begin to follow Jesus. But there are other disciples that miss the point entirely. In Acts, we still find disciples of John the Baptist. Like, this is after Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Like, they didn't understand John's intention and ministry at all. And it shows us how severely we can lose focus of what's truly important, too. So let us pray that we don't miss the point. So back to seeing God increase as we decrease. I want to share a story about how I saw God work in a moment of weakness for me at camp. Aina is a shy and super chill 13-year-old, and we don't really have a lot in common, but last year at camp, she opened up to me about being bullied severely in elementary school. So we started meeting weekly throughout the school year, and 
reading the Bible, talking about life. Um, and this summer, while we were at camp, the topic of bullying came up in one of our evening meetings. We prayed for all of the kids who lived through this in their schools. And the topic brought up a lot of unresolved pain for Ina and also fear since she is switching schools again this fall and she's going to be like the only new person in her class. So on the way back to the camp house, she came to find me and express her insecurity about next year. It was 1 a.m. and I was done, like really just wanted to be sleeping at that point. Um, I was fading physically, mentally, emotionally, but this conversation was important. Uh, so I prayed a quick prayer of help. Lord, I have no energy. Give me words now, please. Um, then I felt uh, like I need to ask her if she wanted to pray and ask God if there, why she felt this insecurity, if there might be like a moment when it had started in her life. She shared an experience that came to mind as she was praying. Uh, she remembered when her whole class had turned against her in the fourth grade and blamed her for something she didn't do. She said she felt like the insecurity started there. So I asked her, okay, close your eyes uh, and just remember the scene. Where were you sitting? Like, what was the classroom like? And she described it. And then I asked her to ask God where he was in that moment. After a really long pause, she said, uh, I see him in the classroom right next to me with his arm around my shoulder. I was like, whoa, cool. So I asked her if he was saying something to her. After another pause, she said, yes, he says, I'm with you. I love you. And we stayed in that moment for a while. And then I asked her how she felt. And she said she felt safe, like a lot more ready to face the new school because she knew that God was with her. And I knew God was with me too in that moment. During all of camp season, increasing as I decreased. So I want to share a personal story about taking opportunities as they come to us. I love being prepared. Um, improvisation kind of freaks me out. About six months into living in Spain, we were leading a middle school retreat on the name of God um, that he gives himself in Exodus 34. Uh, we had said that each counselor was going to prepare a section of the verse and talk about it on a panel in front of the camp. Now, come 30 seconds before that panel, I was told that one of the counselors had forgotten and that they needed someone to fill in. So my stomach just dropped all the way down in my shoes. I, I knew the verse pretty well in English, but you know what I didn't know was the Spanish to be able to communicate that. Learning Spanish is a whole other story in my life, but suffice it to say that impromptu teaching in front of a tired middle school group in another language is something that I'm still learning how to do. <laughs> So for some reason, I just agreed to do it. I just agreed to do it. As my turn was coming, Spanish sentences started to come to my mind. I felt like God was just telling me, just relax and open your mouth. So that's what I did. To this day, I can't remember the details of what I said, but I can remember that one of the counselors came up to me after that and literally said to me, Isaac, you are filled with God. You made not a single mistake in Spanish. Every eye was on you, and everyone was listening. 
God loves to call us beyond what we think we can do. Uh, he does it by placing opportunities in our lives. If we live close to where, he can, where we can hear God's voice, we can walk into these things expectant to see God do something. So to end, one final thought. So I'm an English teacher. I love grammar, uh, and I have a grammar metaphor for you guys. Spanish kids love grammar. They do it uh, methodically f ever since they enter school to the moment that they exit school. So I'll share it with you guys, see if you guys like it. Many spend their lives living as nouns, right? So what is a noun, a person, place, or thing, an idea? But many times we don't mention that nouns are also the subject of sentences. I am talking. Who is the subject? Me. I am the subject of the sentence. I'm the noun. So many live as though they're the subject of life's sentence. But no one is the noun of his or her life. Only God is the noun. It's better to say that we are adjectives, and only one. We are the adjectives of God. We describe who he is and what he is doing in this world. And, we really, and when we really know this, we start to become something much bigger than just grammar. When we know who we are and who we describe, we begin to not just only be grammar, but something more like poetry. And in this, we begin to be part of the beauty that God is doing in this world. Thank you. Um, so we do like weekly club activities with youth um, and then my parents my mom is kind of she works from home so she does sort of the financial like keeping everything running at home and uh, my dad leads one of the Friday activities with me so uh, him this other guy and I we go 45 minutes away every Friday and do uh, basically like games and worship and a talk with uh, about 30 to 40 kids at a church nearby so that's kind of how how I work specifically with my dad um, and then Isaac does that but in Barcelona mm -hmm. yeah. yeah so he he does the vision casting where um, we have weekly meetings with him um, as a, as, a, as a team. So I, although I don't work directly with him, I mean, we're always in the same space talking about the various ministries that we do. Yeah, he loves to uh, just hang out, have people come into his room, and then like talk about ideas for a long time. Like that's his personality. <laughs> so if you uh, get anywhere close to his room, like you might be taken in for like an hour and like <laughs> talk about <laughs> different things. So yeah, we do a lot of that during the week. Uh, graduated Wheaton, Wheaton, I was 2014, and Jen was 2015. 2015, yeah. So that was four years ago. Four years ago. And right after that, I went into uh, a master's, so my master's was 2016.
I think yes, just because my parents are uh, raised us to be quite independent. Like they were, uh, yes, they, they loved hanging out with us, but they were very much like, when I was 18, I went off to college in a different country and I saw them maybe like at Christmas, summertime, but then that was it. So uh, once we'd been living in the States for two years after graduation, um, they were kind of okay with giving us our own space. Like in Spain, we live a town that's like 20 minutes away from where they are. And it's almost like the other way around, like where Isaac and I will maybe be at the, at the beach near where they live and we'll be like, hey, do you want to hang out with us? Like, <laughs> we, because they're really busy. They're um, raising my sister's kids. So they're like grandparents, but also parents. So that dynamic is kind of hard. And so in a lot of ways, like, they, they see us as, oh, these are our kids that are like making it in the world. So they give us our space, you know. <laughs> um, that's kind of a, a little bit of our experience. Mm-hmm. Short anecdote about that, just to demonstrate some of the personality. I think it was the day of our wedding, and right after we had gotten married, I think uh, Stephanie came up to me and gave me a big slap on the back, and she said, well, she's your responsibility now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so happy. So. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Um, so I, I studied missions as one of my, uh, part of my masters, and it, there is sort of this trend recently on this pushback on short-term missions, because there's, they, they've, have found that it's not as effective as we once thought it was. Um, however, there's a certain model for short-term missions that I still believe works super well, and it's one of the things that Faith comes and helps us with, with the English camp coming and genuinely being able to provide something that people actually want in Spain, they want to learn English, they want to speak with native speakers, um, and it's just, it brings a quality, a quality of product of English camp um, when we have native speakers come and, and speak with them. And then there's testimony times at night that, that kids are more willing to listen to them because they're, they're speaking English and they want to learn English. Um, and this is what it's like to live as an American, as a Christian, and they share their testimony in that, and uh, I've just been super encouraged, and it, it helps us grow our English Academy as well. Um, it gives us validity, validity in, in that respect as well. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I would say just the, the support that the team brings every year is something that I just don't think we could do English camp without the faith team coming. Like Erin, um, who led the trip the past like two or three years, she we this year we were talking we were and she was like okay so are we like truly helpful like should we come back like what what should we be doing this year and I said like yeah it, I don't think it could happen without you guys um, because the, just the fact that there's people that come from a different place and are willing and excited to be with those kids like they see that they see whoa 
how long did you fly to be here? And you can't speak Spanish, but you're trying. And I know like Sam, for example, came last year and she was like the camp nurse. And it was like the worst thing because the kids would be like, my finger hurts. And she'd be like, I don't understand you. Like, what are you saying? Like all the time. But just the idea that like she was there, she was nurturing presence. She was, she was willing to help them. And sometimes they just wanted to talk with her. Like at the end of camp, I remember her saying, most of the time, like being a nurse just means that they want to like come up and like ask you questions. I'm like, yep, pretty much. Um, and so just, yeah, and having Amy here this year and just the team, the way that it also gives us a break of being able to see like, oh, they come with new energy. Like they haven't done three camps before this. So they're excited and ready to be here. They um, help us plan activities and just having Americans plan activities for Spanish kids, it's like we could be doing the same activity, but their experience of it is so much cooler. Like, oh my goodness, we're doing capture the flag. Like, this is awesome, even if we do it every week. But just that added layer of like, I don't know, we did this game, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with like Oompa Loompas, and the Oompa Loompas ran around and like caught the kids, and they were talking about it for days. Like, yeah. this was so cool. We're like, this is a super normal game. <laughs> But it, it's, they really like it. So it's a really cool experience. Hmm. Yeah. I was wondering what the religious atmosphere is like in Spain specifically. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's mostly traditionally Catholic. So the, it's just Catholic by name most of the time, so I think it's upwards of the 90, 90% of people would, would identify as Catholic, um, but like 5% of those people actually go to Mass. So even within that, there's like a certain amount of people that don't, that don't even go to church. And even within that 5%, you know, you kind of wonder, are they just doing it because it's just part of the rhythm of their life, or you just have to wonder. So uh, I think in general, evangelicalism or Protestantism, that, that side of things is very, very small in Spain. It's actually, people are kind of surprised that we even exist. You know, aren't you guys a, a cult? Oh, you guys are like Mormons. Or, you know, like, no, you kind of have to explain. In fact, there was a woman that came into our academy during one of our youth events. And she said, oh, what are you guys? Oh, evangelicals. I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Like, same thing. Not quite. <laughs> Really. Let's explain. Yeah. I mean, they, the Jehovah's Witnesses are really good at evangelism, which is a little scary in some ways. But um, they'll stand at street corners in Barcelona with their big like posters and talk to people all the time. So I think and they talk about Jesus like their emphasis is a lot on Jesus. So I think that's why they confuse us, because the evangelical community is really small. And they also have this mentality of being a persecuted church still because back in the day, um, like 50 years ago with the dictatorship, like the evangelicals, I mean, they just, if they found out that you were an evangelical and you were doing a church service, uh, the police would come and like break you up or there were lots of them that just disappeared. Um, and so it was, it was kind of tricky at that point. So they still have this mentality of like hunker down, like we teach our kids to be Christians, but that's kind of it. Like we're not going outside and evangelizing. evangelizing. Some people are, um, but yeah, mostly people are agnostic. People are, it's very pluralistic like it is here. Um, I would say 
with my coworkers in Chicago and my friends back home in Spain, like there's this similar idea of like, cool, faith is awesome for you. Um, I don't really believe that, but we can be best of friends. It's just not my, not my thing. Um, and don't try to force it on me because that's like, I don't want to hear anything about it. So that's kind of the, the gist, I would say. Yeah. Hmm. Well, thank you guys. Yeah.